turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 3. The title of this message is, Are You Dealing with an Evil Person? We're going to be looking at Haman, who we introduced last week as the one that King Azarias raises to a very prominent position, and he's going to go on and want to kill not only Mordecai and Esther, but all of the Jews, and show how wicked he really is. So we'll be looking at the evil of Haman, Esther chapter 3. First of all, if you're dealing with an evil man or an evil person, you need to know that they will get promoted. It says in Esther chapter 3 verse 1, after these things, King Azarias promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So this evil man, Haman, was promoted by the king of the land. It says there that he was advanced, that is, raised up in his seat above all the princes of the land. He has been, by this king, he has been given great power. He was made more important than all the other princes of the land. Only the king had more power than Haman. And you must recognize in the day that we live in the power of evil men. Oh, the power of evil men. In your case, maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a certain member of your family. Maybe it's someone that you used to think that was your friend. But the power that they have is enormous. One thing that an evil person likes is power. They like to have power. What makes them so evil is the way they use the power that they have. They have power that they use for personal gain, to get what they want, to get their way, and to further promote themselves. Secondly, the evil of Haman. His people will bow down to him. Verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage to him. It says that they bowed down to him. That's the first word used. It literally means to bend over and bow before somebody. But it means more than that because when it says that they paid homage to him, that is our word for worship. It means they not only bowed to him, but they gave him some sense of worship. And it says in verse 2 that the king had commanded this to happen. The king who had power above him, above Haman, supports Haman's power. It would be like this. If your boss is your enemy who's come against you, it would be that his boss supports him in his wickedness. If it's a family member in your family that has displayed evil use of power. It would be that everyone else in your family supports the evil that they have or the evil power that they use. And it says in this verse 2 that he was worshipped. It says that all the others in the king's gate bowed down and worshipped him. Bowed down and worshipped him. It may be the case that if you were once deceived, you may have also worshipped this person. 
But now you have had your eyes opened. And now you're no longer deceived. And you no longer worship Him, but you recognize Him as truly evil. Because God has opened your eyes and God has revealed this to you. This person who you now have in mind who is evil. It may be that many other people don't see it. It may be that many other people still worship Him and still think He is the greatest. You often think, how can they not see Him for who He is? You find yourself realizing that you can't say anything negative about Him because all the other people think He's so wonderful and they're worshiping Him. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? In other words, they say to Mordecai, why do you bow down to him? Why don't you worship him like we do? Others may be in your life often saying to you how great he is. Don't you think he's great? And you have to just kind of bite your tongue or, or say something that they won't realize how evil you think he really is. Number three. Evil men are angered when you don't recognize their greatness. You see this in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. The point here could be that angry, or evil men are easily angered. But it's deeper than that. Evil men are angered when you don't recognize their greatness. They're angered because you don't seem to realize who you're talking to. They're angered because you don't seem to realize the depth of power that they have. Number four, evil men don't just come after you. They come after your whole family. We see this in verse six. But he disdained to lay his hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So he didn't think it was enough just to destroy Mordecai. He says, I want to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole province. In verse 6, when it uses the word destroy, that means to kill. It means to annihilate. It means to wipe them from off the face of the earth. It says in the end of verse 6, all the Jews who were out the, throughout the whole kingdom, and it says the people of Mordecai. When you see that word people in the, in the Old Testament, it's usually our word for nations. It's the word nation. He says, I want to destroy the whole nation that has the, the family of Mordecai. All of them. If you have an evil person in your life, they will not only want to harm you, they want to harm you and your spouse and even your children. They'll even want your children to suffer. And the last one, evil people will be your self-proclaimed enemy. We see this in verse 8 through 10. Then Haman said to King Azarias, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other people's. And they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work. 
to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. He wanted to be declared, look at the end of verse 10, the enemy of the Jews. He decided within his heart that he would be their enemy until their destruction. And in these verses it tells us that he was willing to pay for their destruction. He's willing to spend money out of his own pocket so that you can be harmed. He will pay others to come against the Jews. And then he's going to send this letter to all the land that on a certain day they're going to be killed. Let's read the, the letters in verse 13. And the letters were sent by carriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their positions. And so there is a day set by the king through this evil man, Haman. And he's going to have all the Jews killed, young and old, little children and all, on a certain day, about a year to come from now. That's a truly evil man. I'm going to ask you to just, haven't, haven't looked at that. You don't have to tell me who. But if you've ever, because you can live a long time in your life and not experience an encounter with a truly evil person. But if you've ever had a relationship or encountered some sort of person that's similar to this, this evil person, would you, would you raise your hand real high, just real quick, would you raise your hand? All right, most of you. Another important point that I want to spend a little bit of time to explain that we overlooked in verse, uh, verse 1. If you'll look back there with me. It says that he was an Agagite. You see that? You underline that in verse 1 if you would. He was an Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. So I'm going to try to take you through a little bit of Old Testament history and explain to you why this is such a big deal. Being an Agagite tra traces all the way back to Esau. In Genesis chapter 36, there are two verses that explain that the, the son of Esau is Eliphaz and the son of Eliphaz is Amalek. And it, it explains that the Amalekites were the grandchildren of Esau. And so it traces this back to Esau. But also it traces the Agagites back to King Agag, who was king when Saul was king over Israel. And if you remember the stories in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where God through Samuel told Saul to go and kill all the Amalekites and destroy them all. And Saul, in disobedience to the Lord, did not kill King Agag, and evidently some more of the Agagites. That's where we get this terminology from. I want to read to you one passage of that in 1 Samuel 15. We have it there on the screen. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people 
took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgad. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcrafts, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. If you remember, this is when Saul was given an evil spirit and he was no longer God's chosen king of Israel and God then raises up King David to be the king of Israel who killed Goliath and you remember the whole story. So this is a key passage in the life of Saul. He is supposed to kill the Amalekites and instead when he gets there, he doesn't obey God. He keeps the king, King Agag, and how this ties to our story is because Haman is an Agagite. He's from that descendant. He, he keeps the king alive, and he keeps the best sheep and the best herd of, alive for themselves. They keep it as the spoil. The Bible literally says they, they killed everything that was of no use, but they kept the most valuable things. And Samuel, the prophet, comes to King Saul and says, why did you disobey the Lord? Why did you not do what God told you to do? And he tries to Say, I did what God told me to do. Look, I killed everybody. Here's the king before you. And he, he says, we're going to sacrifice these animals to the Lord. Which was probably not true, right? And then God says this infamous line that we still quote today, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey God is better than to disobey God and then try to make up for it with a sacrifice. Do you know what that is? That's religion. Right? You can write religion in the book of your Bible right there. That's religion, isn't it? It's better for you to obey God than disobey all week and think, I'll go to church on Sunday and make it all right. Do you and, he's, and for this reason, for trying to use religion instead of obedience to serve God, God takes his anointing off King Saul removes his hand from King Saul and places it on the new king, which will be David. And so this is an important historical part of Haman being an Agagite because all the way back to then, the Jews and the Agagites, or the Amalekites, they hated each other. They came against each other. Let me give you a little bit more history about the Amalekites. They were the ones who attacked Israel when God had led them out of Egypt. And so here's the story. God's leading Israel out of Egypt. And as soon as they get out of Egypt, the Amalekites, who are from Canaan, begin to attack them. Let's read it, Exodus chapter 17. Now Amalek came up and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Now, just stop for just a second. Remember, that's the rod that he went in before Pharaoh and it turned into a snake. It was a staff. It's like a big stick. He wouldn't have a crooked like ours do today. It would be straight. A big, thick stick. And he threw it on the ground in front of Pharaoh. Remember, it turned into a snake. When the water was turned into blood, he touched the water with that same staff. It was, the, the, it was called in the Old Testament the rod of God. 
It was that stick that God had anointed in the hand of Moses to do mighty and powerful things. And so he goes on top of the mountain and he lifts up the, the stick that has the power of God on it. Read on. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands. And on the one side, one on the one side, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people at the edge of the sword. So you get this picture. Moses goes on top of the mountain, holds the stick, this rod of God, up in the air, and as, as long as he holds it up, Israel's winning the battle, but when it gets tired and lets it fall down, Israel begins to lose, and the Malachites begin to win. So Aaron and Hur set him on a rock, set Moses on a rock, and one gets on each side of it and holds his hands high in the air. This same story is recounted in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it says there, to remember what Amalek did to you when you first came out of Egypt. How he attacked you in the latter ranks, the stragglers who were at the rear when you were tired and weary, and how Amalek did not fear God. Therefore it shall be that when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land that the Lord has given you to possess, that you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget. It says the end of that recounting of the story, do not forget what this evil enemy has done to you on this day. He's saying three things when he says don't forget. He's saying, first of all, don't forget the evil that they did. If you've known an evil person that you've encountered in your life, God calls you to forgive them, but God doesn't call you to forget what they did. You with me? He calls you, do not harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. You are to forgive him. But you are not to forget. What does that mean, not to forget, if I forgive them? That means you don't let them do it again. You don't let them have that foothold in your life again. And if possible, you try to keep them from being able to harm anybody else the way they harmed you. Secondly, you don't forget the love shown to you during the battle. Israel was in the midst of this battle. And love is being displayed more on the battlefield than anywhere else. I don't know if you've known that. If anybody here is a soldier, I think you could testify to that. You, you learn who your true friends are when you're in war and you've got a gun and somebody shoots at you and, and, and your buddy doesn't leave you for dead or your buddy comes along beside you. You experience love like no other when you're in war. And if you've experienced an evil person come against you, one of the things that you found when you're going through the hardest time in your life is you found out who the people were that really, really love you. You're not to forget that. I'll not soon forget, Ronnie, when we were going through cancer and we uh, had that, uh, that Sunday where I repeated my vows with my precious wife because it was our anniversary while she's going through cancer and not supposed to make it. And Ronnie, you prayed at the end of that service and you prayed these words and you said, we lift up John's hands. In, in a quote of this passage and it meant the world to me because it was a testimony to me that you had my back even when we were going through one of the greatest times of suffering 
in our lives. If you've gone through a deep, hard battle, remember the people who stood by you while you were going through that battle. You're not to forget it. And you're also not to forget the protection of God and the deliverance from God that you experienced when that evil person attacked. Do not forget how God came through. Now, it may, have, it may have seemed like at the time he was never going to come through. It may have seemed like at the time this is taking too long. This is causing me to become too weary. God's, God, when are you going to show up? But I'm telling you, there came a day at some point when you in hindsight could look back and say, the Lord did show up and showed himself strong and gave a great deliverance. And you're to never forget that and even to speak of that often all the days of your life. There's another place we see the Amalekites. They also attacked David in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Let me read you the first part of it, and then we have a part for you to read. It happened when David and his men came from Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south, and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. And David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. In other words, David and his men came home from war. Their town had been burned. Their wives and children had been taken. And everything was gone. And they weep so much, they no longer have the power to weep. Have you ever had that in your life? Have you ever cried so much you could cry no more? Been broken so much you could be broken no more. The Bible says in this passage also that David was greatly distressed because the people there wanted to kill David for what he had allowed to happen to their wives and their children. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And God told David to go after them and pursue them and that he would be able to take, up, take back all their family members and then this is the, the end of it that I have written here on your screen. So David recovered all the Amalekites that had been carried away. And David rescued his wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, son or daughter, spoil or anything that they had taken from them. David recovered it all. In other words, it was all given back to him by God. Even though all had been lost, all had been restored by God. This is an Old Testament theme. Evil, wicked people take things from God's people and God gives it back to them. It's real easy for me to say that in a sentence. It's much harder for you to go through that in real life. Losing a spouse or losing a family member or having a sick child or having some great tragedy in your home. When all that's taken away, you begin to see evil. And here's where some people go wrong. They will attach that evil to God and blame God for the evil that they've experienced. But what God is doing is this evil is coming through and God one day is going to restore, rebuild, bring back, and show his mighty, strong power. And so when it says that Haman in the book of Esther was an Agagite, 
It is no small statement to make. It would have been known that he was the enemy of Israel. And that Israel had often fought the Agites. And had often defeated them. And that they were not only the enemy of Israel, but the enemy of God. Let's try to apply this. I have two points. First of all, it says in verse 2 that Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Look back with me. All the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or worship him. It says in verse 4, if you'll look there towards the end, it says, For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. This is an important statement. Mordecai says, I will not bow. They, they come in verse 4, they said, Mordecai, why don't you bow to Haman? And it says, if you look at it, it says, it says they were going to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. See that? For Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. There was something Mordecai was saying to them, for them to say, we want to see whether his words stand. And then he says, I'm a Jew. And that, that is some sort of explanation they would have automatically understood. For Mordecai to be a Jew, and Haman to be an Amalekite, an Agite, would have made common sense to all the people of the land that these are mortal enemies, and God's on the one side, and evil's on the other side. And Mordecai saying, I'm a Jew, is saying, I will not worship an Agite. I only worship God. They would have known that the Jewish people are a people who only worship the living God. And they're going to watch and see whether Mordecai's words would stand. It reminds me of another story in the book of Daniel, the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who made a huge statue of himself, and when he would begin to play the music, everybody in the land was supposed to bow down to this statue that he had made of, him, of himself. Think about it in our day, if something like this were to happen. Every time something comes on TV or some announcement is made over the internet, we're supposed to bow or worship to some being in, in the United States. I think you would see many churches would go along with it. Many people who declare themselves to be Christians would go along with it. They would have a justifiable reason why you should bow. Maybe it's so your family's not harmed, or maybe it's so you don't lose your job. You've got to have a job. You've got to be able to eat. I mean, I can hear the excuses now. Many, or you could say almost all, went along with it, and they bowed to King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Even though they knew that God had said, you're not to bow to anyone else. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 5. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those that hate me. God declares it that you hate him if you worship something besides him. If you bow down to something besides God, it is a matter of hating God. He is a jealous God. And if we do that, men, that sin of whatever it is we're doing that we 
we allow to exist in our life and, and hold the, the altar of our heart, our children will deal with that sin. He says to the fourth generation, our children. Men, I wonder this often. I wonder if my sin that I struggle with so greatly, I wonder if, if it's a sin that I never had this conversation with my dad, but I wonder if it's a sin that my dad had that he never overcame. I wonder if it's a sin that my granddad had that he never overcome. Four generations. And then I begin to look at my life and look forward and I look at the sins that I can't overcome or don't overcome or continue to struggle with that my children may struggle with the same things. And it goes on generation after generation. Nobody remembered the names of the men and women who by the thousands bowed the knee to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody knows any of their names. But we do remember the, the names of three people who would not bow to King Nebuchadnezzar. And look, they're not easy names to pronounce, and they're not easy names to spell. When I wrote them all in my notes, all three of them were underlined with that little squiggly line that says, you've misspelled these, and I didn't even care. And you all probably know who they are. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't even know if I said them right, but we remember their names for one reason alone. They would not bow to a statue. They only bow to the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God Almighty. Amen. For that reason, we carry them in our hearts. And you know the story how because they would not bow, they were cast into the fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, heat it seven times hotter than it's ever been before. And when they were thrown in there, the men who threw them in there died because the heat was so great. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and he said, didn't we cast three in the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to this king, it's true, O king, look. And the king answered and said, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth one is like the Son of God. King Nebuchadnezzar had never seen God, but he recognized God. Walking around in the fire with these other three men who would not bow. And in the last of this passage, it says that when they were delivered from the fiery furnace, the governors and the leaders of the land, the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the fire smell was not on them. You know, there's one of the reasons I don't, I do love to have bonfires in our house. We do it a lot. But one of the reasons I don't like to have a bonfire, let me tell you, I don't like to smell like smoke for about three days. Are you with me? <laughs> Whatever you wear, wear to a bonfire, it's going to be ruined with the smell of smoke for a while. We, we at times even want to lay our garments outside. The passage here says Jesus was with them and the, the suffering did not touch them. They didn't smell like fire. Their hair wasn't singed. The fire had no power over them. It must be your personal decision not to bow down to the things of this world. You must choose. You must choose. I'm not going to live in that sin and make it my idol. I'm not going to repeatedly do that and let it be my God. 
You must make a personal decision that you're going to bow down to the living God. That you will worship God alone. That God is worthy of your life and of your worship. You know, if you're here today and you've never been saved, you, you may not even understand what I'm talking about, but let me give you a glimpse into the power of God working in your life. If God's power is working in your life, He starts drawing you to Himself, showing you how sinful you are, and showing you how much you need God in your life. You may not understand all of it. You may not know what you need to do or what needs to happen, but you just know this. For some reason right now, I've been thinking a lot about this. I need God in my life. You know who's making you think like that? God is. You know why we all can agree with it? And you hear everybody kind of go, mm. you know why everybody did that? Because we've all been through that. Where at one point, I wanted nothing to do with church. I didn't want to come to church. For sure, didn't want to be a preacher. And God begins to draw you to himself and show you through, uh, through different things that you need God in your life. And at some point, God causes you to bow the knee to the living God and say, God, forgive me of my sins. Be the Lord of my life. I want to worship you alone. Are you like that? Do you want to worship God? Do you want to worship Him? Number two, an application. Why does God let evil men win? Let me give you two answers to this. Why does God let evil men win? I should put in there, you know, for a season. Why do they win for a season? Or, or why does it seem like they win? Because when you're dealing with an evil man, you know, and they're getting power. They're making a lot of money. Y'all with me? You seeing this happen? They're cheating and still getting away with it. They're lying and still getting away with it. They're they're deceiving and 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 their their business is doing way better than mine. You know, right? I mean, you see, why are they getting away with it? Why does it seem like evil men would win? I'll give you two reasons. The first one. To prove God's power to use you. To use you. God in this story, as we get, continue through the book of Esther, he's going to use Mordecai and Esther to save the Jews. They're going to be saved in the end. They're not going to be killed and wiped off the earth. The spoiler, if you haven't read the whole book. And he's going to do it through a young girl named Esther and a man named Mordecai, who were ordinary people. And I want you to know this as we read the book of Esther. Esther and Mordecai are not God's plan B. He, he's not caught off guard and Haman rises to power and is going to get them killed. And then God says, oops, I, I messed up here. I'm going to have to have a plan B and find a way to save Israel. No, he's, he's has plan A is use Mordecai and Esther to save Israel. And, and he's watching, even allowing Haman to come to power. Haman to get this position right under the king. And God is allowing this to happen so that he can prove his power to use ordinary people. Two ordinary people. He's going to show even how much more powerful he is when he uses simple, weak, ordinary people. If you're here today and you say... Wait a minute, God. Do you know me? I'm a dud. 
I'm so weak, I'm so ignorant, I'm so simple. You're not talking about me. All right, let's go back just a little bit here a while ago. And I had you raise your hand if you've ever encountered an evil person. Remember that? Just a little while ago? If you've ever encountered an evil person, then what you've encountered is God doing something in your life to shape you so he can use you. You know this? The enemy wants you to be discouraged. He wants you to crumble. When evil people rule and evil people have power, the devil wants you to doubt. He wants you to quit. He wants you to give up on God. He wants you to lose hope in God. And especially, he wants you to lose hope in this. That God would ever use little old you. But God's going to use ordinary people like you and me to prove how strong and how powerful he is. God will use even you. And if an evil person has come against you, I'm going to make this bold statement today because it's biblical. If an evil person has come against you, I'm testifying to you on the word of God today, God is preparing you to be used by the hand of Almighty God. In almost all the people in the Bible that God uses mightily, study it. Prior to using them powerfully, he allows something evil to come against them and for them to go through a great season of suffering. You say, why does he do that? Look, I can't give you all the answers. Maybe it's to humble us. Maybe it's to prepare us. Maybe it's to strengthen our faith in God. Maybe it's to cause us not to get proud and arrogant when God finally does use us. I can't give you all the answers, but I can tell you this. If God has allowed something evil to come against you, He's preparing your heart and your faith for one day when He's going to anoint you with His power and use you to do something for His glory. And you won't take the credit for it. You'll give God all the glory. Because do you remember the valley that you were in a while back? Do you remember how low you were and how defeated you were? And you give God the credit that God lifted you out of the depths of despair and set you back on your feet. And so now if God is doing something, you can recognize, it's not me, it's God. And you'll give God the glory when He uses you. Can I say this to you out of love today? Your suffering did not ruin you. Your suffering didn't ruin you. It didn't end your testimony or end your life. Your suffering prepared you to be used by the hand of God. If you're a true Christian, and you know somebody who's a Christian suffering today, it is evil for you to abandon them. Think about this. It is evil for you to abandon that person. You draw near to them and love on them and testify to them of faith in God because you remember those. Remember, we're not forgetting. You remember those who stood by you when you suffered. That's when Christian community and church community becomes so powerful. When all the people in the church have suffered something and they've learned how to suffer and trust God, then when they see somebody else suffering and everybody surrounds them and loves them. And in our society today, when we see somebody suffering, we, we want to just kind of Push them away a little bit. Just stay back from them. You know, I'm not sure if he's innocent or not. He might be bad. You know, is that what we do? Love on them. 
God will use you. God will use you. The second reason God allows evil people to win for a season is to purify your faith in God. Well, it seems like the last days now, doesn't it? It does, to me. It seems like we're in the latter times of the world. And the Bible says you'll know this because the days are evil. Let me read it to you, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. If you just read that passage of scripture right there, then that says, these are the last days. If you believe that we are in the last days based on that scripture, will you say amen? amen. And when we experience in our church the truth and the real realization that perhaps this is the last days, because wicked and evil is growing rampant, then here's what the enemy and evil wants us to do. It wants us to quit. It wants us to give up on God. It wants us to think things like this. What's the use in even trying anymore? A lot of people after COVID thought that, and they said, what's the use in even going to church anymore? And that's why churches across the United States are closing their doors like crazy. The enemy wants you to lose hope in God. The enemy wants God's people to think, to think even things like this. I shouldn't have children in this wicked generation. The enemy wants you to think like that. The enemy wants you to think even worse. The children that I already have, why even try? They don't stand a chance in this wicked generation. The enemy wants you to think, why even try? They're not going to have a chance in this wicked generation. Or worse, our young adult children who are thinking of marriage are thinking, what's the use in even looking for a spouse? There's no godly men left. There's no godly women left. Or worse, that generation is thinking, there's nothing godly left. I'm not even going to marry, and I don't want to have children and bring them in to this wicked generation. That's what the enemy wants us to do. When we wake up and say, it must be the end times. Look at all the evil that surrounds us. But let me give you another passage of scripture in Joel chapter 2. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. This also is about the last times, the end of days. And the Bible here says that in that 
end time, there will be a great outpouring of the Spirit of God. I don't know if you know this about me, but I pray for this every week. God is my witness. I pray for this every single week for over 30 years now. There's nothing more that I pray for than that when we have church on Sunday, there would be an outpouring of the Spirit of God. I know this. I can preach and yell and cry and run these aisles, but it doesn't mean that that can just be ranting and raving. And you can go home and say, boy, John just ranted and raved today. But if the Spirit of God shows up, he will transform a quiet whisper or a calm tone in the power of the living God that has power to change people's heart, change people's thoughts, and cause people to be even saved by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ if it is anointed by the Spirit of God. I mean, the, the difference can't even be compared. It can't even be described. And I'm saying to you, I pray for this every week. And here, this is what the Bible says. In the last days, there will be a great outpouring of the Spirit of God. That means when we're going to come to church, we're going to experience the Spirit of God like we've never experienced it before. You say, I don't want to watch the news because things are so evil today. You say, I don't want to turn the, turn the internet on and look at what happened yesterday because things are so evil today. I'm saying to you that in the last days, what's going to be coupled together with that wicked, evil expansion that's consuming the earth is going to be a powerful expansion of the Spirit of the living God. And it is going to strengthen you and empower you like you've never experienced before in all your days. He goes on, he says, You will see a great outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You know what that says to me? In those last days, those evil last days, God's going to use our sons and our daughters. You say, where's the hope in the last days? I'm going to tell you how the hope is going to happen. He's going to use our sons and our daughters. I know a church, a couple of churches real near here. I talked to a man recently. He said this to me. He said, John, most of our children are now raised in our church. They're, all, they're young adults. And so he said, now our church is full of people that are 50 years old and older. And we have no young people. I said, none. He said, zero. I said, what happened to all your children? He said, back in the day, there were children everywhere. All of our children were in the church. He said, now they're all adults and none of them come. Zero. He said, we realized, we had a church meeting recently. We realized that there are all our church is full of 50 years old and older. And if we don't do something soon, our church will lock the doors because we'll have all died because there are no children. And the devil wants us to hear stories like that to be discouraged and to lose hope and to say there is no hope. But the Bible right here says in the end times, your sons and your daughters, they're going to be prophesying, prophesying of the glory of God and the testimony of the cross and the gospel of Jesus and seeing people say your sons and your daughters are going to do this. This is how God's going to work in the last times. I preach to men a lot in this church. Amen? I try to lift up the standard of God for men a lot. And if, if you're here in this church and, and you could say, God brought me to this church and you're a man, you need to know this. God brought you to this church not just to exist if you're a man. God brought you to this church to learn how to be a godly man and to live like a godly man. And if nothing else, 
your precious wife is learning how to pray for you and ask God to cause you to rise up. And God's going to do this in the last days. He's going to raise up some great dads and some great men who are going to raise great sons and great daughters who are going to live for God and prophesy of the glory of God in the latter days. I'm, I'm, I'm excited by this because this is something I preach about and God is saying this is what He's going to do in the last days. And let me just say to you, if you men want to become who God wants you to be, and it's not this generation, that you young men and you young ladies who are here who still haven't found the spouse, that godly spouse, you need to have hope in this. God's going to give you a godly spouse. And God's going to give you a godly home. And God's going to help you to raise up godly children because then your children are going to prophesy of the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. There's coming a day when God's going to cause men and women to raise godly Boys and girls who are going to teach the cross of Jesus and bring about a great move of God in the last days. And it's going to be the most evil days we've ever experienced. Worse than that. The most evil times that have ever been. Worse than now. And there's going to be the most godly young men and women. Godly young people who are going to stand for Jesus and proclaim the cross in those last days. It goes on. He said, your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Look, I know some of y'all want me to put, put me in that old men phrase, but I'm, I'm staying in the young men phrase for now, buddy. I'm still staying in the young men. But they mean the same thing. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Here's what it means. They're not going to just point to the past and, and say, look back there what God did so long ago. In the end times, Old men will dream about what God's going to do in the future, and young men will have visions about what God's going to do in the future. God's outpouring of His Spirit is going to cause the heart of men, young and old, to believe God not because of what He did in the past, but because of what they see God's going to do in the future. They're all stirred up over there. I love it. It's subconsciously making me preach. I love it. God gave me a God gave me a dream, a vision over 30 years ago for the town of Lewisburg. That he would raise up in this town people that had a heart for God, families who loved Jesus. Families where husbands and wives loved each other and loved the Lord. Family where husbands and wives taught their children the word of God and brought their children to the house of God. Family where families were families. And a place where church was church. And where you could see the glory of God and experience the presence of God. Many times I've talked to you from this place and I've told you about a prayer that I've been praying more than 20 years and God had not yet answered. This is that prayer. I don't know if I've ever told you what it was. This is that prayer. It was based on God giving me a vision that there's going to be a move of God in this town, in Lewisburg. I'm not saying it's necessarily even in our church, but in churches in this town where men and women's hearts are going to be turned to God. I dream about it. I think about it. I pray about it. It's been the passion of my heart. It's why I'm still in this town. God is my witness. 
That's why I love hearing them get excited up there. Because God's going to do that in many churches. When I drive to church on Sunday morning, I pray for every church I go by. I pray for pastors I don't know in this area. I pray for churches I don't know in this area. I'm not against them. I'm for them. I want God to make a move in our town that don't just touch you, but touches your family and your grandparents and your grandchildren and your children. A move of God. If God can get your child that's grown to go to another church, then glory to God. If God can get your child that's grown to come to this church, then glory to God. I don't care where they go as long as they're getting some Jesus. It's going to be an outpouring of God's Spirit. Young people are going to stand up and prophesy. Old men and young men are going to have a vision for the future. And many are going to be saved. And families are going to be turned to God. People are going to be used by God. Do you believe God? And you know what I say based on that? The enemy wants you to say, I shouldn't even have children. I can't bring up children in this evil world. I say, let's have more children. <laughs> Your Bible wife would go crazy. We're not. <laughs> when it seems all is lost, when it seems evil is winning, God's preparing the people who will believe Him to be used mightily by Him in a way that only He will get the glory. Only He will get the glory. And when God does it, all you'll do is testify about how good He is and how much He has done. And you'll worship Him. You'll only worship Him. We're about to start building here in this church again and building more back there and putting some really nice stuff in. I'm a, I'm a weirdo preacher. If you didn't already know that, let me explain. Okay? I'm, I'm just weird. Most preachers want church, their church to build a building so bad. They want to be able to put on their resume. Their resume. Kids used to call them their, their resume. We build a building. Ronnie can testify. I don't even care about building. I have a, I'm, if anything, I'm the naysayer. I'm the, we don't need to build. And you know my reason why I don't want to build a building? Because all these churches build a building. And then people come to see their new building. They start to grow because of their new building. And, and the building gets all the glory and all the credit. And if that's the case for us, I don't want to build it. I'd rather go back to the barn where we started. I desperately want a move of God in this church. But just as desperately, when it happens, I want God to get all the glory for it. Not some building or some structure or some person or some program or something we begin to do. But we have to just say, wow, God showed up. And look what God did. Look what God did. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I ask you to exercise faith right now and pray. And just say, God, I believe you. I believe you. Pray, Lord, don't let me be discouraged by evil. But let me be encouraged by the move of the Spirit of God. I believe you, Lord. I believe in the last days you're going to do mighty things. 
As if you're here and you're a man, you, you say this, Lord, I believe it so much. I want my life to be totally under your control. I want to be the man you want me to be. I want to be the husband you want me to be, Lord. I'm tired of playing games and just going through the motions. Dear God, make me the man you want me to be. Make me the husband you want me to be. Make me the father you want me to be. Lord, I want to read the Bible to my children. I want to read the Bible to my son. I want to read the Bible to my daughter. Make me the man you want me to be, Lord. Lord, use me in my family to testify of the glory of God and how good God is. Let me be bold. If I can't be bold anywhere else, let me be bold in my family to say how good God is. How great God is. Father, we, we give you this church and we pray, pray, Lord, that if you desire to use us to, to build your kingdom, that you would do so. Pour out your spirit among us. Fill us with the love of God. And draw men and women here who need to hear the story of Jesus and how great he is. Use our people, Father. Use our families, Father. And have your way. Have your way for your glory in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?